a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness. Our name comes from the story in Acts about the Apostle Paul sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear before Caesar in Rome. In those days, sailors used the sun, moon, and stars to navigate. But Paul's ship sailed into a storm that blotted out all of heaven's lights, leaving them unsure where they were or what to do. When storms of suffering or doubt overtake us, we can feel like they did. We can feel as if all of the stars that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering in the Christian life. Both the first volume, When the Stars Disappear, and the second volume, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. In this episode, we learn that suffering was inevitable once Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree, yet it is also a crucial element in how God calls us back to himself. Mark, last time we discussed Adam and Eve's rebellion by their eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You said that was a revolt against God's authority, his right to command them. You also said it was a rejection of his love, of his stepping back to allow them to choose whether they would love him more than anything else or anyone else. And you said we would see in this episode that their choice is the source of all of our suffering. In other words, that they, and not God, are to blame for the way the world is now. That's right, Paul. Well, what about Adam? Why does Adam seem to get the blame in Romans 5, 12 through 14, when, as we've seen, it's Eve and not Adam, who is central in the temptation scene? I mean, the serpent addresses her and not him. She was the first to take the fruit and eat it. And then she gave it to him when he ate it too. So isn't Eve especially to blame? Uh, Not really, Paul. We've got to be awfully careful here. Moses doesn't editorialize much here. He just relays the facts. And we have to be careful that we don't take the text to warrant conclusions that are more reflective of our views on men and women than of anything clearly affirmed in the text. Hmm. So uh, how is that? Well, it seems likely that the serpent in his craftiness, addressed the woman because she hadn't heard God pronounce his prohibition. She apparently received it at second hand from Adam, and who knows how carefully he had conveyed it to her. Yeah, right, because Eve hadn't been created when God gave the command in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Right. And once the serpent had drawn her into conversation— it was natural for him to continue talking with her. Mm -hmm. Her initial response to him may have been meant to defend God's goodness by her quickly rebutting the serpent's initial blanket statement that indeed, to think that God has forbidden you to eat from any tree in the garden. Mm -hmm. Yet her response doesn't seem to have been strong enough or accurate enough. She said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. That statement, 
doesn't emphasize the enormous generosity of God's actual statement that you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. And it seems to increase the restrictiveness of God's prohibition by adding, neither shall you touch it lest you will die. Yeah, right, because in the original 2, 16, and 17 command Adam, there wasn't any prohibition against touching it. Right. In any case, now the serpent directly contradicted God's word. Mm -hmm. God's word having been that they would certainly die, and the serpent said, you will not certainly die. Right. He then insinuated that God issued his prohibition with his own selfish interests in mind, rather than with Adam and Eve's proper interests in mind. Mm -hmm. And once Eve started down the slippery slope of questioning God's motives, she didn't stop before she hit bottom and ate from the forbidden tree. Yeah, right. But now here's the crucial question. Why didn't Adam stop her? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Remember, As soon as God made Adam, he placed him in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, as the New Living Translation puts it, or to work it and keep it, as the ESV puts it. Now, the Hebrew word that the ESV translates as keep is shamar, which means to watch or guard. Wenham says that that word has the simple, profane, everyday sense of guard, But he says it is even more commonly used in legal texts of observing religious commandments and duties, and particularly of the responsibility of the Levitical priests for guarding the tabernacle from intruders. Interesting. Like those priests, Adam was to guard the garden against ungodly intrusions, of which the serpent was certainly one. Yeah. And verse six of chapter three of Genesis tells us that Adam was right beside Eve as she took and ate, and when she handed him some, he ate too. That's so interesting, Mark. So what you're saying here is that Adam's responsibilities to guard actually had a reverential aspect, a a kind of almost temple-like worship. Yes, exactly. And here's the thing. It seems that Adam probably stood beside Eve throughout the temptation. Hmm. And yet he said nothing to her that would guard her from the serpent's blandishments. Yet it was his responsibility Mm -hmm. to guard the garden, which would have included guarding her from temptation. He also was the one to whom God had pronounced the prohibition. I think all of this places more responsibility on Adam than on Eve. Right, right. And it seems to me that it's worth pausing here for just a second, Mark, because it's so significant. You're saying that Adam, who had been given the command and who had been put in charge of the garden to guard it, was likely standing there the whole time Eve went on with the serpent, but he did nothing. He said nothing. That's right. Hmm. But it's not as if the New Testament lets Eve off the hook. There are a couple of New Testament passages that refer back to Eve succumbing to the serpent's temptation, mm-hmm. most notably 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. But no matter how we interpret those New Testament passages, it seems they don't lessen the fact that during the temptation, Adam should have stepped in. 
Right. And the fact that Adam is the person who is held accountable for the fall in the New Testament, and as you mentioned, Romans 5 and at 1 Corinthians 15, the fact that he's the one who's held accountable just drives home the point that the responsibility for keeping the prohibition fell more on him than on her. Wow. That is striking to me that in this first sin, Adam's contribution is primarily a kind of tragic passivity. Yes, yes. Yeah, he ate the fruit, but before that, he failed to speak God's word, and he failed to strengthen Eve against his temptation. He sort of sat there like a bump on a log. It's really sobering. Hmm. So now let's go on to survey the disastrous consequences of our first parents' rebellion. Okay. We've already identified the most disastrous consequence. We've said that Adam and Eve's spiritual deaths, which is the kind of death primarily referred to in the extremely strong warning against eating from the forbidden tree, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Mm -hmm. We've said that their spiritual deaths were inevitable if they ate from that tree, because their disobedience and eating from that tree severed their spiritual lifeline with God. Rather like if I do something really dastardly, Mm -hmm. I may sever my friendship with you. That's hard to imagine, but I suppose it's true. As we saw, Paul, in the previous episode, personal life is essentially and necessarily a life of communion, of love, with other persons. God's Trinitarian life emphasizes this. Mm -hmm. As creatures made in his image, we must be in intimate, personal communication and communion with other persons in order to become and remain mature persons. Mm -hmm. As you said, community therefore seems inextricably linked to what it means to be a person. Yeah, I mean, to be fully a person involves being in various relationships, this give and take with other persons in community, with mutual obligations, it helps form our personhood. Helps form it and helps sustain it. Right. And even more than our need for life among other human persons, human life without communication and communion with the living God is hollowed out and can't sustain itself. Hmm. And give me understanding that I may live. I stress that our lives lived in alienation from God are no more than living deaths. As we've said in our prior talks, our relationships with other people points to our ultimate need for relationship with God. Yes. We discussed God's command to Adam in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, a bit ago. The warning that God attached to his prohibition was simply announcing what was inevitable if they refused to love, honor, and obey him above all else. Mm -hmm. Human beings, as created persons, do not, in fact, cannot live on bread alone. We are not just biological creatures. We must live on words, and more specifically, We must live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. To refuse to live on God's words, his words of blessing and curse, of command and prohibition, and all the rest of it, means immediate spiritual death with biological death inevitably following. 
Yeah, Mark, you're saying that food is necessary for continued life. And similarly, ongoing communion with God, which happens only when we receive and follow his word, is necessary for continued spiritual life. It is necessary, you're saying, for us to be in communion with God. It is necessary for us to be full persons. Yes, yes. And as Kidner observes, the full implication of God's warning that in the day Adam would eat of the forbidden tree, dying he would die, only slowly unfold in the last pages of the New Testament. Mm. There we learn what it has cost God to redeem human beings, as well as how God will throw uh, those who remain rebellious into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Mm. That, that will be the final judgment, the judgment that comes after the usually slow process of biological decay. It will kill any hope of ever partaking of God's saving mercy, of ever regaining communion with him. It will complete the process that began when our first parents ate the forbidden fruit. Yeah, again, you're taking us and you're bringing us to the end. You're looking at that bookend in Revelation as you did with us a few episodes ago to help us understand what's happening here. That's right. That's right. But the impacts of the breaking of communion are, of course, found throughout the New Testament. Sure. We know from passages such as Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that from Adam and Eve's initial act of rebellion onward, all human beings have been born spiritually dead, estranged mm -hmm. from God's life-giving presence. We are all now in our natural state if I can put it this way, like zombies. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Unless we are born again by God's spirit, we're just animated corpses. Yeah, great and analogy. Even though we continue to move about are just the walking dead, mm. no matter how healthy we seem, we are no longer capable of fulfilling the purpose for which God created us. Yeah, that's great. But this is, if I'm understanding you, is only the final result of our first parents' rebellion. And the fact that we are all naturally zombies, spiritually <laughs> dead, is not obvious to us. So how is all of that relevant to our suffering? Well, it's relevant, Paul, because we must become aware of our desperate state. Hmm. And it's not obvious to human beings that they're spiritually dead. And suffering is often key to our becoming aware of our desperate state. I see. Suffering is often the only kind of human experience that's powerful enough, mm -hmm. we could say jarring enough, disturbing enough, to help us realize that something is desperately wrong and that we need to know what it is. Yeah, that's very good. Some suffering, it seems, was inevitable after Adam and Eve's rebellion. As soon as they ate from the forbidden tree, we're told, their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. Yes, and from the narrative, it seems to have hit them pretty hard. <laughs> That's right. They self-medicated by mm -hmm. covering up, sewing fig leaves together and making themselves waist coverings. In other words, they sought 
to block each other's gaze, Mm -hmm. for they couldn't bear to be completely transparent with each other any longer. Right. But even worse, they could no longer tolerate God's gaze. Mm. Genesis 3 continues by saying, Now they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Eating from the forbidden tree caused them to fear God's presence, not in the spiritually healthy way that keeps his children from disobedience and sin, but in a spiritually deadly way that prompts us as their descendants to try to put even more distance between ourselves and God. It's agonizing to read that. The loss of their complete relational transparency with each other and with their God, it's such a sharp, dramatic fall. It's terrible. And the text clarifies that all of our relationships, all of our relationships are now perverted and distorted by our first parents having eaten from the forbidden tree. Hmm. In response to God's question, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam said, the woman you gave to be with me gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Hmm. In effect, blaming God and the woman for his own disobedience. Yes. And then when God turned to the woman and said, what have you done? She blamed the serpent saying the serpent deceived me and I ate. Yeah. Yeah. So all these consequences followed immediately on Adam and Eve's eating from the forbidden tree. What else is here, Mark, that we should take note of? Well, surprisingly, Paul, and I think probably counterintuitively, the account tells us that God then actually increased the amount and kinds of suffering we now find in the world. Okay, well, that does seem deeply counterintuitive. Why would God do that? I think there are at least a couple of reasons. Kidner comments that the first doctrine of Scripture to be denied is the doctrine of judgment. The serpent denied it when he said to Eve, you will not certainly die if she ate of the forbidden tree. Mm. But to deny the doctrine of judgment is ultimately to deny the reality of personhood. Interesting. Being liable to judgment is part and parcel of being responsible, accountable creatures. Mm-hmm. In breathing into Adam the neshama of life, God bestowed on him the gift of personhood that enables us to think, learn, speak, teach, make value judgments, and thus make free decisions. Mm-hmm. We are accountable for our decisions. We can be required to give an account of our choosing and acting as we do. Right. Now we can make good decisions. As when Solomon asked God to give him an understanding heart to judge God's people and to distinguish between good and evil rather than asking for long life, wealth, or the life of his enemies. Right. And we can make bad decisions as when King David, his father, summoned Bathsheba to his house to sleep with her. Yes. We are judged for our decisions. 
the book of Hebrews declares that it is appointed to all human beings but once to die and after that the judgment. And our Lord warned his disciples that each of us will have to give account on the day of judgment even for the idle, lazy, or useless words we've spoken. Okay, but I'm not really following here. You're saying that being a person means in part that we're accountable. And you're saying that judgment is related to that. It's a part of that accountability, and that makes sense. But how is all of that related to God increasing the amount and the kinds of suffering in the world? Scripture declares, Paul, that righteousness and judgment, judgment is the word mishpat, mm-hmm. are the foundation of God's throne. Righteousness and judgment are the foundation of God's throne. Mm-hmm. God wouldn't be God, and his warning to Adam and Eve about the consequences of eating from the forbidden tree would have been untrue if Adam and Eve had not been judged for choosing to disobey God's prohibition. Okay, so for God to be God, you're saying, his word has to be true, and he has to follow through on his promise of consequences for disobedience. God must be true to himself, and he must treat us, as you've put it, as persons. Yes, yes, and consequently, Genesis 3, verses 8 through 19, is primarily a judgment scene Hmm. tempered by mercy. First, God calls both Adam and Eve to account in verses 8 through 13. Then from verses 14 through 19, he pronounces the specific punishments that the serpent, woman, and man will suffer for having acted as they did. Hmm. And so Mm -hmm. God said to the serpent, because you have done this, He would be cursed above all other animals, and at some point in the future, some woman's son would crush the serpent's head, even as the serpent would strike at that person's heel. Interesting. So God's responses to Adam and Eve's rejection increase the sufferings and the varieties of suffering. The new element— Yeah, got it. So the new element of suffering that God introduces, they actually correlate to Adam and Eve's rejections. Yes. They, they, they track, as it were, with Adam and Eve's corrupting of their lives as persons. They are the appropriate punishments, Paul. Mm-hmm. They are the punishments that ought to follow from their disobedience. Yeah, that makes sense. And with both the woman and the man— These punishments involve both a life function and a relationship. Mm -hmm. Eve was created to be in a fulfilling relationship with Adam, as well as to become the mother of his children. And so her punishment involved her experiencing great pain-bearing children and friction in her relationship with him. Right, right. Adam was created to work the soil from which he had been taken. That was Mm -hmm. the relationship. And so his punishment involved God's cursing the soil so that his work would be frustrating since the ground wouldn't readily yield food for him. He would Mm -hmm. now, after the fall, 
only secure his livelihood through hard toil that would ultimately wear him out, Mm -hmm. at which point he would return to the dust from which he was taken. Hmm. So these things that were designed to be expressions of God's purposes for Adam and Eve on the earth, they're still there, but they're, they're now accompanied by, as you put it, appropriate kinds of suffering that reflect this rejection, their rejection of God. Exactly, Paul. But then we need to note this. In pronouncing these punishments, God was foretelling what we all experience Mm. because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. As it's put in Romans chapter 8, creation itself has been subjected to futility because of Adam and Eve's sin. And yet, and yet this judgment is tempered by mercy. Yeah, praise God. There's the ultimate mercy that some woman would bear our Lord. Hmm. But there's also the mercy that the suffering we now experience is one of the chief means. Indeed, I, I, I think it is the chief means mm-hmm. by which God recalls us to himself. For in fact, it's in our suffering that we ask why. Why am I suffering like this? And the ultimate answer is because we are the children of Adam and Eve who need to be reconciled with God through the suffering and death of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. With regard to suffering, C.S. Lewis put it this way. Pain is not only immediately recognizable evil, but evil impossible to ignore. Mm-hmm. We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. I love the way he puts this. Mm-hmm. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It right. is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Yeah, that's a wonderful quote. It's the sick who realize they need a physician. When everything is going well, we usually have no sense of the desperate plight we are in. Suffering often helps us recognize that something is deeply, radically wrong, and it can thus start us down the path that leads us to our Savior. Well, that's absolutely wonderful stuff, Mark. Just fantastic. Thank you for the the reference to Lewis. Thank you for your time again today. This strikes me as a great place to end our session. Thanks, Mark, very much for the time today as always. Thank you, Paul. The most disastrous consequence of Adam and Eve's disobedience in eating from the tree of good and evil was their spiritual deaths. But it's not just Adam and Eve. Now we are all born spiritually dead and unable to fulfill God's purposes for us unless by God's Spirit we are born again. Yet Genesis 3 shows that God tempered his judgment with mercy. While suffering is an inevitable part of living in a fallen world, it is also the chief means by which God calls us back to himself. It often helps us recognize that something is very wrong and thus starts us down the path that leads us to our Savior. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Paul Winters. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at whenthestarsdisappear.com. We'll answer listeners' questions as soon as we have enough of them to make up an episode, and we'd love to answer one from you. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and Paul, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear. 